0: Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. Um, If you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com, the link is in the show notes, and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven-day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website, um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we explore why we get stuck in the past and what helps us move on. Today, I'm joined by Dean Yates, uh, who's just published a book about healing from trauma. It's called Line in the Sand, and it's uh, an engaging and courageous mix of memoir, reporting and advocacy about his struggles with PTSD and uh, another condition called moral injury. Now, like me, Dean's a former journalist uh, for Reuters News Agency, and he was the bureau chief in Baghdad in 2007, when an American gunship killed two of his staff. Footage showing both the incident and how the military lied about it was later published by WikiLeaks, and uh, as we discuss, part of Dean's moral injury was the guilt and shame that he felt for not protecting his colleagues. But he also felt cowardly for not speaking up for the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. More than anything, though, he felt betrayed by Reuters, which later tried to force him out of the company when he got overwhelmed by trauma. So there are lots of layers to this story, but uh, we really focus on healing and uh, in particular how Dean learned to tune into feelings through various techniques that got him more embodied as well as how important it's been to find a new identity. And part of that is working with others. So he's now a a passionate advocate on mental health issues, press freedom and government accountability. You can find out more about all of that at deanyates.com.au. You can also scroll back in the archives at uh, ancientfutures.substack.com to uh, read about some of my own reflections on working in journalism and some of the ethical dilemmas that that uh, throws up. Now uh, if you go there you can also support the podcast by becoming a subscriber. All donations which are an option are very gratefully received and uh, enable me to keep doing this work. Now without further delay let's dive deep into what helps us heal through this inspiring discussion with Dean Yates.
1: welcome nice to see you daniel
0: nice to be chatting um we have been kind of loosely connected for a long time in that we both used to work for a big global news organization reuters uh, although we didn't actually meet at that time and uh, i wish we had because having read about your experiences i feel we had quite a lot in common um as a result of being a journalist, having things that needed to be processed that weren't so easy to relate to. Um, You've written a book, uh, Line in the Sand, um, and that's uh, subtitled in a really evocative way, which I think uh, immediately clarifies why I'm so eager to talk to you. Um, A life-changing journey through a body and mind after trauma. And obviously there's a lot in there and uh, I want to unpack it all, but uh, it's this, you know, almost through the body and the mind beyond the body and the mind there's this there's, there's there's some very deep work that you've had to engage in to you know bring yourself around from some of the experiences that that you've been through and uh, there was a line in the book that really stood out for me when uh, you were saying to your wife this recovery is real and she said well actually I prefer the word healing <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if we could maybe start by by yeah, clarifying why healing is is perhaps a more resonant word and uh, what the difference is between that and recovery
1: Yeah thanks Daniel. It's a great question and it's something that I I thought about for a long time actually the word recovery bothered me because it just didn't feel right when it came to trauma, when it came to mental illness. I just felt as I was as I was going through my own journey that yeah this there is no end point there is no there's no finish line with with trauma and, and obviously with mental illness, there's no end point, right. For someone who's got, who's been diagnosed with depression or PTSD, there is, it's, it's about how do you, how do you, um, how do you lead a life that is full and rich and so on while managing whatever condition you've got. And so yeah, Mary and I would go back and forth on this uh, quite a bit and to me at first healing just sounded a little um a little bit sort of just wasn't my type of word and I guess it almost went against the journalist that I was right you know you you talked about us being uh, colleagues at Reuters we, we you're right we never met but that that was the that was one of the things about being at a big news organization and I was the you know, a bit like you, quintessential news agency journalist, one story after another, methodical, just keep doing story after story. And so the whole concept of healing to me was just something I never thought of until I had really spent years on this journey. And it, it just occurred to me that when it comes to trauma, that uh, healing is the best word because I think it trauma is a wound. And what people go through and suffer from is, is, a, is a wound. And it's a wound that encompasses that, that body and that mind and one soul. And so uh, I like the idea of healing because the wound can heal, but the scar is still there. And that is very different from recovery, where you recover from a physical illness and you're as good as gold right you just you can get back out on the track and you can run around the the over like you once did trauma is different and so healing for me was just that it just feels like a better a better way of describing it and i've had no one disagree at this up to this point
0: (laughs) well i think you you know touch on something very poignant there i mean it is a wound but uh, you were saying if you'd come back from iraq and uh, we should clarify that that's that's the uh, the location for um particularly the the, the, the triggering incident although there are many other situations you worked in that were, were probably deeply traumatizing and that most people would have run a mile from um, yeah if you'd come back from Iraq with a physical injury it might have been easier to figure out what was going on but uh, instead you had what you, you uh, described quoting somebody else as a bruise on the soul and so it's it's an invisible wound
1: yeah that's right and and I think this is one of the this has been one of the this is one of the challenges for for people who have got. Uh, PTSD, who, who suffer from these sorts of um, these traumatic events in their life, is that it's often easier. It would be easier if you had a physical injury. People could see it. They they understand it. They get it. And I know that, as I write in the book, Mary uh, once said that, or has had previously said that. Look, it would be it would have been easier for our children if I'd had a physical injury, if you like, because they were young they were young at the time. And then when my symptoms really started to get bad, they were in their early teens. And trying to explain to young, to your kids, the concept of trauma, PTSD, it's a complex thing. And so, but we had to, and so we 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 had to spend a lot of time working on that with them and, and trying to get across to them what this all, all meant. Uh, but I, I, I think that, the more I, I feel anyway that uh, people are are really starting to get this idea of, about about a wound and how it's something that can heal but it takes time and there's a particular dimension to your wound that I really
0: want to to. I know. <laughs> I'm wary of saying stick my finger in but um you know that's that really is I guess the, the sometimes you gotta of rip it, off yeah. Yeah. look sometimes yeah. you got
1: to rip off the gauze you got to rip off the bandage and and <laughs> and, and you know for, for me it was uh look as you say I I covered a lot of um traumatic events as as a journalist uh, Bali bombings boxing Day tsunami uh and of course being in Iraq for a long period of time um, right at the height of the civil war that the invasion yeah it, that's right that's and, it that's exactly right the, the yeah but for me, obviously, the big traumatic event was the deaths of two of my staff who were killed by a US gunship on July 12, 2007. And that um, event is been was made uh, famous, if you like, when uh, Julian Assange published footage of that in 2010, classified footage that was um, leaked to him, leaked to WikiLeaks by Chelsea Manning. And for me... This was this was just a, a a terrible event. But for me personally, as the bureau chief for Reuters at the time, I felt a deep responsibility for those two two men, Namir Nor Eldin and Said Chum, who were killed because I was I was responsible for their safety, and they were killed on my watch. And what that ultimately led to for me, nearly a decade later, was just uh, a sense of guilt and shame that I had failed them. And because of my failures, they were killed, lost their lives. And then when when I realized the full extent of the significance of this event, I guess, because one of the things you do with trauma is you block it out, you, you bury it. I, I had uh, failed at the time that Julian Assange published the footage to speak up about it. I hadn't um, publicly... Uh, spoke about how, what I knew of the event, and I didn't, I didn't force Reuters to push for an independent investigation into what happened. And as a result, the US military's narrative of uh, what occurred was allowed to go essentially uh, undisputed. And so that for me resulted in in what's called a, a moral injury, which is very similar to PTSD, very similar symptoms. And it was that which drove me to the Brink of suicide, really, back in 2016. And I ended up in a psych ward um, for the first of three admissions, which, which, yeah, turned my life around. But it was, it was trying to, this was at a time when hardly anyone had heard of moral injury. And it's probably still a little bit like that now. But it was trying to distinguish between the PTSD and the moral injury. And then how does one go about dealing with that? and healing from that was, was challenging.
0: I can believe it.
1: And, um,
0: you know, I really would just like to, to, to clarify for, for people who aren't so familiar with all the details, exactly what it was you were carrying. And there's a line from your book that I'd just like to read out, which relates to 2010 when, uh, Assange published a video that he titled collateral murder and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, really, that was that was documenting something that you'd been lied to about by the U.S. military, and uh, suddenly, you know, it's clear to you that the story that had been presented to you is untrue. It, it's it's proven to be that way, and then at the same time. You didn't feel able to speak up about what you knew, and so you write in your book: "I was cowardly when Assange released the video. I was shocked, but I wanted someone else to deal with it. I dishonored myself. That's what I must live with, atone for. This is my moral injury." And uh, yeah, I, I, I would love it if you could just clarify a little bit more for people why it was that it was so difficult for you at that time to 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 speak out.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good point, Daniel. You've zeroed in on on really a very pivotal part of the journey and and what I was going through at the time I, I didn't realize this of course it, it took the it took me through the whole stages of writing this book to understand but when that tape was released I just went into shock mm. as you could imagine I couldn't watch the tape I didn't want I just didn't want to know about it I was actually on holiday in, in here in Tasmania with my family at the time and when it was when it was published my family, we' were in we we're in a national park in the middle of Tasmania. so we didn't even know about it for two days until after we'd come out of this national park and by then two news cycles have already gone. and I, I went into a state of avoidance, which is a classic PTSD symptom. You just don't want to have anything to do with the traumatic event. And that was that was just how I reacted. But it, it my interpretation of all that, was that i was a coward for not speaking up and for setting the record straight of what really happened because i was the one who knew what had happened and um but it helped me it really helped me to get to the point where i understood that and i understood why i felt the way i felt because by getting to that understanding and getting that insight i was able to forgive myself i was able to show myself some compassion, rather than just keeping it buried, uh, and so then when I'm able to go back and look at it, I can see and say, "Oh, yeah, that was a, that was avoidance. That's why you couldn't deal with it." But there was definitely this element of just not not wanting to touch it, and um, I, I think it's I, I was just. Uh, I guess I was lucky because I just had this journalistic curiosity as well as I was in the psych ward thinking, why was I feeling like that? Why did I react that way? And so that's where I kept searching for the for some answers. And this was how I sort of stumbled across moral injury and, and found um, some of these answers to the questions I had. And I think one of the most uh, searing
0: points that you make through what you you learned about moral injury is that the worst thing anybody can try to do is to reassure you and tell you you know, you shouldn't feel so bad. You know, it's the US military that gunned down these these people in cold blood. Um, it's Reuters who failed to really push to get the evidence that you couldn't personally have, you know, had the same weight to to try and demand. Um, why are you blaming yourself? Because, you know, you, you felt like you'd let yourself down. And so anybody trying to reassure you is not going to make that go away.
1: Yeah, I, and look, I almost ended up, uh it it really, yeah. I mean, you, you've just nailed it because I had so many people say to me, Stop blaming yourself. It's not your fault. It was war and and I really got sick of it. Uh, because and I felt like screaming at people, you don't know how I feel. But you know, the people who understood how I felt were the veterans in the psych ward, right? The the people who'd been in, in combat situations. They got it. Coppers got it. They understood, right? So people who'd sort of had that, I guess, responsibility for people in putting people in, in life threat situations, they got it. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was to show people that you have to listen when someone says... You know, I, I feel this I feel this terrible guilt and shame about something I did or didn't do, which is which is where moral injury comes into comes into play, right? You have to be prepared to go against your gut instinct, which is to say, don't blame yourself and actually listen to them and say, Okay, well, I, I want to hear what you've got to say. And and that's hard because our instinct is to try to make people feel better. But actually what we need to do. Is to is to let people tell their story, share their story. Because that's the only way that people are gonna heal. And and it's actually the sign of an intact moral conscience when someone does feel this way, right? Absolutely. Because it shows that they're they've got good values.
0: And feeling you know, is is mm. in many ways it seems the key. And uh, and yet that was really challenging for you at the beginning. You describe a particularly poignant scene with uh, the psychiatrist in in the, the psych ward who's who's saying you're intellectualizing your trauma. You're basically a journalist, you're emotionally emotionally detached from the situation, you're giving factual accounts of what's happened to you, and there's no emotional content. Why was that, yeah, the
1: I've, case I've, that? I've had a few I've had quite a few uh journalists mention this to me actually. I, I think it's really I think that's really resonated with journalists. And, and it goes back to the way we were were uh did our job We're trained. It's just stay detached, do your job, move on, do the next story. And uh I just think it was that uh this idea that it's not that you it's it's not that you weren't a human being but that we were supposed to be that detached observer. and and there was a, a a real limit to any emotions or feelings that we were supposed to have. And that uh, anyone who, you know crossed that line, if you like, needed to go and be an aid worker. Right? So I really feel that uh, this psychiatrist, she just she got me right from that first session. Uh, when I was just rattling off, I was rattling off dates and death tolls and locations and <laughs> and and really, I was, I was essentially reading a news report, an extended news report. And she just looked at me and she said, "I just feel like I've been sitting here listening to a journalist tell, telling a story, but I want to hear your story." And I just knew then that we were going to get on really well. And but it was easier, it was easier said than done for for me to tell my story, and it it. It literally took years before I understood what it meant to not only express my emotion, but to show that emotion and to let it come out. Because it had been, essentially, I, I, it had, I guess, partly been repressed, but it had also been deliberately, uh, I had deliberately put my emotions in a box when I covered these events like the Bali bombings uh, and the Boxing Day tsunami, because I think if you, as a journalist, if you were to if you were to let your emotions really get out, then you're not gonna be able to go back and cover some of those sorts of stories. But then the problem is that then affects your personal life and so on. So it, it, it was a challenge. Probably one of the most difficult things for me on this whole journey was understanding what emotions meant for me and, and how I had to go about actually expressing them. And I, I really had to do a lot of work on that.
0: What have you found helpful in that process? What's, what's been able to get you more in touch with what you're feeling?
1: A lot of nagging from my clinicians has certainly <laughs> helped. Uh, I mean, seriously, and, and all my good clinicians have been women. And I don't know what that says about therapy, but mm-hmm. all the good clinicians I've had have been women and they've all been able to i guess just uh, not not so much yeah nag me but uh, but really stress upon press upon the idea that I was not going to heal unless I opened myself up and showed my emotions and let my family back in and not not you know not collapse to the ground in a bubbling mess but but just to feel my clinicians help me feel again and and then you know constant conversations with mary my 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 partner about feeling as well and so yeah you know, one time as I write in the book I, I say to her I realized that this is this is probably one of the big things I'm still I' still got to work on is is my emotional the lack of the, the inability of me to express my emotions. And so I think that that was really important to have that, that constant communication with Mary about this. And you can actually sit down with a clinician if you've got a very good relationship with that person and say, I need to work on my emotions. How am I going to do it? And this, this was essentially what I would do. And so with, with my we would go back, my clinicians, because I had various ones either in the psych ward or outside the psych ward. We'd inevitably go back to my childhood, right? And look at the way I was why I was raised, the way I was brought up, country Australia, young lad. You had to be tough. You had to play contact sport, things that I actually didn't really like, but you had to do no 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 young boy in Australia, in nineteen seventies growing up expressed any emotion. You know, this was this was just the sort of thing that would get you called a girl, right? And so you had to fit in. And, and I just took that with me into adulthood and into, into, the, into journalism, like I think a lot of men have. And now that's why a lot of men struggle.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, To continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com